Well, we've had a good time tonight already. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much for the offering and what a blessing we've had this evening and people praising the Lord. I'm, I like it. I like it. I really like it. I, I enjoy it. Doesn't bother me. I know I grew up up north, but uh, when I got saved, I got just as excited. And really, I haven't got unexcited yet about it. And I anticipate one of these days I'm going to be even more excited about it. Check out of this place and get to glory land. That ought to be a pretty exciting day, don't you think? But I do appreciate being here. Appreciate the singing. Just a wonderful, wonderful service tonight already. I want you to look, if you would, in your book uh, to the little book of Ruth. Little book of Ruth. And I want to talk to you tonight. Uh, I've been preaching revival meetings since 1976. So it's quite a while. And in my limited experience and in my observation, my topic tonight uh, is the greatest hindrance that I feel uh, to revival in our churches and in our individual lives is what the Lord would have me talk to you about tonight. Now, the little book of Ruth comes up just after the book of Judges. And Judges ends with a scathing epitaph about the children of Israel. The Bible says there that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You think about all the things, the preacher mentioned some of the things that in the Bible, the miracles of the Bible. Can you imagine what those Jews had seen and what God had done for them and the wonderful heritage that they had? But this human race of ours, we somehow get to the place even after all we've seen, that every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Now, what I want to talk to you about, I'll just read one verse of Scripture, uh, Ruth chapter, well, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and I know you know the story, so that'll just give a little context. Verse 19, so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Now I want to talk to you on this topic. Call me bitter. Call me bitter. The fundamental cause of this predicament that uh, Naomi and Elimelech and the two boys found themselves in was there was some there was a famine in the land. I think it caused some kind of a economic crash, at least for this little family. I can infer in reading the Bible that they had been happy-go-lucky and now. Everything seems to be sad and yucky. <laughs> the dreams that they had harbored are now dashed on the rocks of a reality. That happens to many people today. They build wrong. They bought wrong. Maybe some have married wrong. They feel some their health is gone. Difficulties arise and 
In this little family, they felt like they had to move. The Bible says in verse number one of chapter one that they went to sojourn in the land of Moab. A sojourn, that word is, means a temporary stay for just a brief time. But that little respite turned into a decade of tragedy and heartache in this family. The exciting adventure became a horrible experience. They left home, they had money. They were full of fun. And now the family is broke and empty. You know, sometimes that happens to churches. They junk their hymn books. They put up screens. They add a cappuccino bar in the back and they have donuts and coffee and they don't have a song leader anymore. They have a, a dance troupe basically up on the platform. Uh, they disguise it with another term. They, they back off of their standards and, and they never make it back to where they were. When I moved to Cincinnati, I don't mean to be negative but I went to a large church where I had been preaching meetings and I was invited there and I was there three months and I knew I missed the will of God. That was nearly 30 years ago. But you know, when you're 36, 37, 38 year old punk kid, you don't want to admit that you made a mistake. You put your kids in the Christian school, you bought a home, you told everybody this is what you're supposed to do and so you swallow your pride after a while and you admit that maybe you messed up. When I first started going to that church, my wife and I would go to soul winning visitation. Uh, they had it in a midweek uh, uh, day. There would be, we would count off. We would, they had a room about the size of this uh, building right here and we would line the walls around there and count off. Every single time there would be over a hundred people going out to knock doors and try to win people to Christ and invite them to the house of God and encourage them in their Christian life or if they were backslidden, try to get them straightened out. Over a hundred every time. Some time went by and the pastor got up one, oh, maybe Thanksgiving time and he said, we're going to take December off. We'll not have any soul winning visitation in December, you can spend the time with your family. Nobody said much about it or even thought much about it, to be frank with you. When summertime rolled around the next year, he said uh, in May, maybe Memorial Day, that time of year, he said, now we're going to take June, July, and August off. Spend time with your family. Have vacations. We'll not have visitation throughout the summer. God being my witness standing in this pulpit, the last two times I went to soul winning visitation at that church after they tried to crank it back up, there were nine people that came. Seven of us were in full-time Christian service just like me. It's hard to get back. It's hard to come back. It didn't turn out too good for Elimelech and Naomi. There were three deaths. There were three funerals. 
The boys married heathen girls. What do you expect? In a strange land with strange gods and the kids made choices that hurt. The boys in this story. Now I know some of you have the other species of human beings called girls. I don't know much about girls. I married one. But I don't, still don't know. I've been married nearly 47 years. I'm still trying to figure her out. If you elderly people have any advice for me, I'll gladly take it after the service. If it's any more than keep your mouth shut and your head down, Tim, I'm not interested. These young girls today, they look at some boy. They say, well, he's cute. He's got a nice pickup truck. Man, is he great at video games. No, he's never had a job. Why in the world would you look at him twice, girls? Folk enter marriage today like they're buying a pair of tennis shoes. See, you can choose any conduct that you want, but you don't get to choose the consequences of that conduct. These boys, Melon and Kellyanne, the old Schofield, I don't have an old Schofield. I have them at home. I don't have them anymore. I've got to have large print now. But Malon meant sick and Kilian meant pining. If that doesn't describe the average teenage person in America today, our kids, many of our kids are spiritually sick. I think a further cause of the bitterness in Naomi is that uh, death was a precursor to her bitterness. And sometimes it's the death of a ministry or the death of our plans. And we get like Naomi. And notice what she said at the end of verse number 13. We blame God. She said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's God's fault that this happened to me. Now, Naomi, that word means pleasant, and I think she was a good mother-in-law, and I think Ruth was enamored and enraptured by what Naomi was and who her God was. But this pleasant one has now morphed into the bitter one. I want you to remember this. Put it down somewhere in your memory bank that bitter people give bad advice. Look what Naomi said in verse 8. She said unto her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. She said, Go back and live with the heathen. Stay in this place where there is no God and no blessing. Bitter people give bad advice. Bitter people are like streams of polluting water. The root of bitterness, the Bible says in Hebrews 12 and 15, that root of bitterness defiles others. Just like in Esau's story, you know that. It it didn't just bother uh, Esau, it bothered all those around about him. Bitterness starts small. That root of bitterness, matter of fact, if I'm I'm not a, a farmer by any stretch of the imagination, I've killed more plants than I've ever raised or got a harvest from. But roots start from little seeds. Just little seeds. 
Uh, I think, preacher, you were with me when I got that book. And matter of fact, I think you might have bought it for me. It was, uh, we got it at Brother Allen's last uh, June, I believe it was, might have been November. Uh, it was a biography, the autobiography of William Jennings Bryan. And I didn't know it when I got the book, but he died partway through writing the book in 1925. He had been here in Dayton, Tennessee, not too far away from here in the great Scopes trial. And on the way back to Washington, D.C., he, he died. He'd been Secretary of the State under Woodrow Wilson for almost four years. He was three times, three times, mind you, the Democratic nominee for the President of the United States. Of course, he never won. The Republicans beat him every time. But I think he was a better man than any of the Democrats been running recently, frankly. But in that book, in that book, he told, it was one of the most interesting things I've ever read in my life. He said that in the, the, in the average watermelon, there are thousands of seeds. He said it takes 5,000 watermelon seeds to weigh one pound. He said in a 40-pound watermelon, now you can do the math, there would be 200,000 watermelon seeds. He said one watermelon seed can be placed in the ground, warmed by the sun and moistened by the rain. While there, that seed takes its coat off and goes to work. It gathers from somewhere, somehow, 200,000 times its own weight. And forces through a little stem and constructs a watermelon. The outside is ornamented with green, painted with a brush and an omnipotent hand. Inside is a layer of white. Within the white is a core, the color of the sunset in the summertime. All these, all through are scattered these little black seeds that are capable of doing exactly what the one that mothered that watermelon did. He went on to say what architect drew that plan? Where did that power come from? Who painted those colors? Where, where, oh where did the flavoring get mixed in? How did it arrive at its shape? You can't explain a watermelon tonight. Why do you think that you can limit God? God can do anything. I said that to say this. It starts small. Naomi did not want Ruth to follow her home. That's evident in this chapter. I think, I think Ruth would have been a remind, reminder of a bum marriage. Maybe it would have been a reminder of dead boys. Maybe she was embarrassed to bring her back to Bethlehem. Bring this heathen girl back to the land of bread and blessing. I suppose if they had twittering tweeters back in those days and blogging gossips, they'd have had a field day at Naomi's expense. I can imagine in my mind's eye, Naomi is grumbling all the way home. Every problem along the way is exaggerated. And when she gets there, she, when she arrives, she shows herself and her griping. She went out full, she said, but I came home empty in verse 21. Notice, notice who is the cause of all her problems in verse 21. The Lord. Seeing the Lord. The Almighty. It's all God's 
fault. This bitterness, bitterness changes people. Changes their countenance. It turns smiles into frowns. It furrows our brows. It clouds the visage. It blackens the eyes. It, it grits the teeth. It sours the disposition. When you're living with a bitter individual, it's like living with a deranged lion or a dyspeptic tiger. It's a horrible thing. You ever come home, gentlemen, from work, hard day at work, and your precious wife meets you at the door? She's got a rose between her teeth. She's got the newspaper sitting over there. She's got a, cup, a glass of sweet tea sitting over there. She, she said, sit down here, honey. Prop your feet up. Supper will be ready in just a moment. I mean to tell you, that is a great thing. When that happens, it is ooh la la. It's a wonderful night coming up. The next day you come home from work, you stop over at the flower shop, you buy a dozen roses, you walk into the house, and she has turned into a Doberman pincher with lipstick on. How in the world do they change in 24 hours? This root of bitterness grows in our hearts and it affects our blood flow. It changes one's attitude towards others and self and God. Now, I've got a news flash for you tonight. I've got some good news. God loves bitter people. God loves bitter people. You see, there is nothing you will ever do in your life that'll ever make God love you any less. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you anymore. He loves us tonight unequivocally. He loves bitter people. His, her homecoming is initially ruined by her bitterness. But God's thoughts were above her thoughts. And God had a plan for this little heathen girl that Naomi brought with her. For Ruth was going to have a baby. And there were some redeemable lands there to be returned. It had been forgotten, I think, from Naomi's perspective. But someone, someone had been caring for the property of Elimelech. Now I want to say to you tonight, thank God for Boaz. If you know someone, if you're living with someone, or if you're around someone that is filled with bitterness tonight, may God give you the attitude of Boaz. Someone's got to stay right so the bitter one can have a safe harbor to return to. In Naomi's case, it was Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. In our case, it is Jesus, our elder brother, the redeemer of all. He is married, the Bible says, to the backslider. His desire is to turn our bitterness into joy. Now we got to look quickly at Ruth, this widow, in a strange land with a bitter mother-in-law, no money, but God was watching all the time and he loved her. 
Now I want to say to you tonight, in whatever condition you are in spiritually, God is interested in you. In chapter 2, Boaz is a mighty man of means. In our case, Jesus is the richest one I know. Naomi bitterly demanded to uh, Naomi, said to Ruth, go, go and glean. Go and glean in the field. Uh, Go to work. Someone's got to bring some sustenance to this family. So she went in verse number 3 of chapter 2, and she gleaned in the field after the reapers and her hap. Now I've heard a lot of preaching on her hap. I like her hap. I think the hap is the happenings of life. It was just, you say it was just by chance. No, it was just by God. In verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. I don't want you to go gleaning anywhere else. I want you to stay right here. He told his workers to leave her alone. He told his workers, if she ever thirsty, I want you to get water for her. He told them to stay away from her. And in verse number 10, she asked the question that some of us have thought about tonight in this service. She said, why have I found grace? That fellow, I don't know who he was back there. I didn't turn around and look at him. He was shouting, been doping for 30 years. Why did he find grace? Why, why has God been gracious to you? She said, why have I found grace? Why me? Why would God do this for me? In verse 11, you know what Boaz said? He said, it hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done. (laughs) You know, God knows some things about you. God knows everything about you. (laughs) You may not do as much for you as it's doing for me, Why have we found grace when he knows all about us? Sometimes we forget the pit in which we were dug. Sometimes we forget the scar that was in the rock that we were hewn from. But God, God, he overlooked it. He saved us in spite of our past. Why have we found grace? Now the rest of this little book reads like a romance novel. I have never read one, but Brian has told me about some that he's read. And so that's why I put that in here today. In verse number 14, they, the, the servants reached her parched corn and she, was, she did eat and was sufficed. They took care of her at mealtime. Then the great text there in verse number 16 handfuls of purpose were left in her behalf. Matter of fact, it says there in verse number 17, it said after the colon there, and it was about an ephah of barley. I looked up what an ephah was. An ephah weighs 60 pounds. I mean, to tell you, Ruth was a stout gal. I doubt if I could carry 60 pounds of anything home. 
I don't have much strength left. Oh, I like, I like verse, verse 12. And the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. The lady sang about that tonight. Then she said, let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaids. I don't really deserve this. I, I, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't have gotten all this, but I, I realize that a good man is now helping me. Now I want to say to you tonight as a child of God who is right with God, may you be that good man that would help a bitter person come back to the right relationship. Now the uh, fellowship that Boaz and Ruth had in the following verses, they're kind of like dates for these two lovebirds. When, when she came home, Naomi said, who and where and what? Where, how'd you get all this 60 pounds? Now the story there in chapter three is kind of like leap year. Some of you older people, you remember there used to be in the Sunday comics up north anyway, and it might have been during the week, but we, I don't know if we, in color, they were in color on Sunday. And the Sunday comics used to have a story about little Abner. Remember little Abner? Remember little Abner? And there was a girl after him all the time by the name of Daisy May. And uh, the only time Daisy May would come after him on leap year. And apparently wherever uh, something hollow that was where they lived, uh, she, could, she could propose to him and, and he would have to kind of accept. And this situation comes down. Boaz, he goes to sleep there in chapter 3. Oh, she goes down to the floor in verse number 6. And she did what her mother-in-law had told her to do. And Boaz had eaten and he drank and... His heart was merry and he goes and lies down at the end of the heap of corn and she comes softly and uncovers his feet and she lays down. He got his sandals off. He's sound asleep and somewhere in the night, kind of, I, I would have supposed it might feel like his foot had gone to sleep. Bothered him. And uh, so in verse number eight, it said at midnight that the man was afraid. He's, I mean, it terrified him. You say, why would it terrify a man that a woman was asleep at his feet? He knew that if there was a woman at his feet, she could propose to him and he'd have to marry her. You know what scared him to death? He thought it might have been the town hag. <laughs> Some stalker, he's scared to death about it. But when he wiped the sleepies out of his eyes, he saw it was Ruth. And she's the one. You say, how did that all work out? Because someone else was involved. God was at work in their behalf. See, there was, but there was another kinsman that was closer. And that was this other guy. And, you know, he had some rights. You know, we have another kinsman too. And we were pretty loyal to that kinsman. Until the day we got saved. We are all of our father, the devil. That's where we, I mean, we all are, we're all sinners. We had another kinsman. But thank God there was a kinsman redeemer that paid a higher price. Yeah, you know, he said, I want the property. Well, you can't have the property unless you take the girl. But thank God, Boaz, 
He got the property. He got the girl. I am glad to report to you tonight that in his hand, in his hand, God came with a divine deed, not only to purchase the property, but to purchase us. He got it all. Boaz, the Bible says there in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, that Boaz, he, he bought it all. And I can honestly say to you tonight that Jesus paid it all. And you fast forward just a few months. And here's Naomi sitting in the rocking chair. And she's knitting baby, baby booties. <laughs> and the bitterness has been banished because they've been bought by the Redeemer. The bitterness has been bought out because of the presence of the Beloved. The bitter woman is gone through the purchase in the Old Testament. But the bitter woman is gone from the blood of Jesus Christ being applied in the New Testament. I'll give you two stories and I'm done. I preached a couple, three weeks ago in southern Indiana. I was still having my treatments. I had to conscript a couple of fellas to drive me back and forth. It was a two-hour-plus drive, and Sunday my wife went with me, and uh, she drove me, and, I, and we spent the night Saturday night and came back Sunday evening. I preached a different sermon. Matter of fact, I've got, I have more sermons, more messages on bitterness than any other message that I preach in revival, save gospel messages, of course. But I've got at least a half a dozen or maybe seven or eight, really, sermons on bitterness. And I preached another sermon on bitterness. My wife was sitting in the second row where that lady in red is sitting right now in that church where I preached. I gave the invitation. And I saw my wife swirl around and kneel down at the front row of pews in that church. She's a spiritual girl. She knows God. I didn't go and talk to her. We're on the way home in the car. My wife uh, faced cancer all of uh, 2015. She had serious radical surgery. She still is taking treatments and will for the next uh, four plus years. She swirled around and knelt down at that altar and on the way home, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't cavalier, I wasn't casual about it, but I kind of, with a twinkle in my eye, she couldn't see it, it was dark in the car. I said, what'd you go forward tonight for, girl? And she began to weep. She said, I've been bitter. I said, because of the cancer? She said, No. I've been bitter, and she mentioned a certain person that she's known all of her life, that she's loved. She said, my sister never called me, never wrote me, never said a word. She said, I've been bitter towards my sister. I said, did you get taken care of tonight? She said, yeah, I did. Got behind. Good people can be better. God's people can be better. You probably know this lady. I won't call her name. You probably figure out who it is while I'm telling you this story. 
to me, it's one of the most striking stories about someone that's bitter that I've ever encountered in my ministry. I was preaching in Pensacola, Florida. The service was over, and I had a book table. Sandy was with me down there. We were standing together. And inevitably, inevitably, when you have a book table, you'll have people come up and talk to you. They'll engage you in conversation. You've got 12 people over here trying to buy books or whatever. This guy doesn't have two nickels to rub together, but he wants to tell you his life story. And, you know, I'm enough of a capitalist, I want to get over there and make a nickel, you know. This little lady about this tall, white-haired lady, I love white-haired people. I think white-haired people are the best people in the world. She came there and she was talking to me and I had a bunch of people there and my wife is standing here and, and I'm not paying attention. I'm trying to get away. I'm, I'm really, I'll just be frank with you, I was ignoring the little gal until she said this. She said, my father killed my husband. Excuse me, my father killed my mother. My father killed my mother. And I said, ma'am, what did you say? She said, my father killed my mother. I said, what happened? She then told me this story. She said her father had killed her mother. It was an accident. He was in a fit of rage, though, and he killed her. She said, the doctors told us that uh, my father was not strong emotionally and he probably wouldn't live very long. And sure enough, within a year or so, he snapped and died. Said my mother was buried in the old family cemetery in Tennessee. Said, but dad, we didn't have dad buried next to mother. We had him buried over with his family. And so the space was empty next to where my mother was buried. She said for 46 years, 46 years, the anniversary of my mother's death, two or three weeks before it, I would get all agitated and upset and that bitterness towards my daddy would come up in my heart and then the anniversary would come and then for another three or four weeks after I'd have that bitterness and angst and anger towards my father. The anniversary of their wedding same thing would happen. The anniversary of my mother's birth, the same thing would happen. She said, for 46 years, I struggled with that bitterness towards my daddy who had killed my mother. She said, I called the sexton up at this old country cemetery and I asked him a question. She said, is the grave plot next to mom still vacant? He said, of course it is. She said, would you mind if I bought a headstone and put it on that empty plot? Would that be okay? He said, it's your property. You can do what you want. So she got a headstone. She had it engraved. And she had it placed in her presence on that grave plot. She had written on that gravestone, forgive and ye shall be forgiven. She said after tears were flowing down her face, tears were flowing down my face, my wife was weeping. She said, preacher, after decades of bitterness and memories and all of the just clouded 
problems because of what had happened. She said, the anniversary of my mother's murder came and went and I didn't remember it until three or four weeks later because I had forgiven. God had allowed me to forget. God will help us to forget when we forgive. You can keep rehearsing all the negatives in your mind. You can keep retelling the story and defending yourself. You can keep rehashing that incident. You can keep scratching the scab off and that wound will never heal. You Listen, this is my definition. You know how you know that you've gotten beyond something when you can't repeat all the facts with exact certainty. You've gotten beyond it. Let it go. Let God purge your mind of the source of bitterness. See, forgiveness is your choice. You know, when you're bitter towards someone, 99.9% of the time, the person you're bitter at doesn't even know you're bitter. And you're all upset and you're mad at the guy or the lady or the individual or the circumstance or my old boss or an old teacher or somebody way in the past and they are whistling Dixie and having the greatest time of their life and your bitterness just builds and builds and builds. Forgive it. Forget it. Get beyond it. God has something in store for you. God loves bitter people. But he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay that way. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask two or three questions. Number one, how many Christians in this room say, preacher, since I've been a born again child of God, I've had some bitterness, maybe towards an old pastor, maybe towards an ex- Mate, maybe towards a stepdad or stepmom. I've had some bitterness in my life towards some people, but God has helped me to get over it. Would you raise your hand high that I could see it? That's 80% of us. That's a whole bunch of us. I want to ask you this question tonight, but I don't want anybody to raise your hand. There are folk in this room. Let me ask you this. Are you bitter tonight towards someone, something, some incident, some anecdote that you try to keep buried in the closet of your mind, but it keeps coming out like a skeleton? You just can't get beyond it. You bitter tonight? You can get past it. I've been bitter. I could tell you without even thinking five or six stories in my own life when I've been bitter. And, and I think in all of them, I was wrongfully treated. But if you've been wrongfully treated, you can't be rightfully bitter. You've got to get past it. You've got to get through it. Put it behind you. Now I'd like to ask you to do something tonight. 
crowds of people, 80% of us raised our hand that we have been bitter in our lives about something or someone or something. I like some of you folk and really it wouldn't be bad if all of us got in the altar tonight and lined the aisles with our presence or fell out in the pews and prayed. But I'd like some people to come forward tonight in your life. You've been bitter and you've got past it. And I'd like you to come tonight when we have the invitation and get in this altar for one reason, for two reasons. One, to pray for others. And number two, to be kind of like an umbrella for others. And that would help somebody tonight who has some deep-seated bitterness to be able to come and get in this altar and let Jesus, let Jesus help you with it. Forgive. Get past it. Get to the place where you can't remember every intricate detail of how you were mistreated. Ask the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you from that bitterness. There is power in the blood of Jesus. More than just to save, there's power. Let's stand our feet. As she's playing, we won't sing, I don't think. Come, I want, I want some of you, I'd like a, a bulk of you to come who've been bitter and God's gotten you past it. You know, you could come down here and thank God for getting you past it, getting you through it. Getting you beyond it. And if you're bitter tonight in your heart towards someone, something, some anecdote, some situation, you can come tonight. Nobody's going to know. But you and Jesus. You and the Lord. You can get it taken care of tonight. You can get it taken care of tonight. You can get it behind you. I know you got a raw deal. I know they ripped you off. I know that guy mistreated you. I know they said bad things about you. That bitterness, it's not hurting them, but it's eating your lunch. Spiritually. You need to come, you ought to come. Father in heaven, I don't know the situations, the circumstances at all in the lives of anyone in this altar right now. I would say the majority of them are here praying for others, thanking you for helping them get past and through their bitterness. But Lord, there may be one of your children here tonight on this altar that is bereft with bitterness. It's bulging at the seams in their life. They've dealt with it to the point of distraction. I pray, God, you'd give them some help tonight. I pray you'd help them to get past it, get through it, get beyond it. By the grace of God. God, help them. I preached a sermon probably 15 years ago on bitterness in a large church in Florida. It was the last night of the meeting. The service started at 6 giving the invitation the altars were filled people went back to their seats and a young man I think 14 maybe 16 years of age came forward he said I need to make an apology tonight I've been bitter towards my stepdad 
I said, son, is your stepdad here tonight? He said, yes. I said, and you've got bitterness toward it? Yes, I do. I, I, I've hated him. I've made life miserable at the house. He said, I love my father, but my mom and dad split up, and I, I hate, I've hated my father-in-law, my stepdad. Man, bitter towards him. He said, I won't ask him, forgive me. And that stepdad and that boy met oh, about halfway back. That auditorium was half again as long as this and about half again as wide. And they met over there. And while they were carrying on doing whatever, doing that altar filled up again. 75, 100 people in the altar. That service that night, we didn't get out till after 10 o'clock. People getting right with one another. Keep people getting past things. People getting it under the blood. People, I mean, friend, there is no sense carrying around a bag full of ephah, 60 pounds of bitterness. Leave it at this altar. Get past it and beyond it. I've been bitter. I'm going to tell you, dumb things you get upset about. Some of them are pretty big things too, by the way. But you got to get past it. You got to get through it. And I pray God will help you to do it.